Welcome to the Swan Signal Podcast, a production of Swan Bitcoin, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys at swanbitcoin.com. I'm your host, Brady Swenson, head of education at Swan. Swan Signal Live pairs great guests for compelling discussions about Bitcoin and economics. This week, Preston Pish of the Investors Podcast Network and Andy Edstrom, author of Why Buy Bitcoin. Glad you found your way here. Enjoy. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Swan Signal Live. We've got a prime time edition tonight. I love doing these things at nighttime, man. It's uh, just a good mood. It's a good night to talk about Bitcoin. Every night is a good night to talk about Bitcoin. I'm particularly bullish for this particular episode. We've got Preston Pish and Andy Edstrom with you. Before we dive in, let me talk to you a little bit about what we do at Swan. We have built the easiest and best way for you to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys. It's super simple. Think about Bitcoin like a 401k or a payment on your mortgage, regularly, consistently buying some Bitcoin, saving it up as an investment in your future and our future, collective future. Um, the process is super simple. You just connect your bank account. We'll auto pull uh, money from your bank account and buy the Bitcoin and then you can automatically draw it. That's it. One, two, three. Um, we have super low fees. We are up to 80% lower on fees than, uh, than Coinbase, which is, you know, just crushing Coinbase. Uh, we have, uh, up to 57% lower fees than cash app as well for recurring buys. So I don't think there's any reason to, uh, be stacking anywhere else with your auto recurring buys than Swan in the United States. Uh, and in case you missed it, we are launching daily buys. We've had massive demand for daily buys since we launched the app, uh, launched the service. It's uh, right now the, the the most often or the the fastest or most often you can buy Bitcoin is weekly. Uh, with daily, you should be able to catch those dips even better. That's launching soon. To get into the first cohort, the first group, the beta group of daily buys, go to swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys and sign up there. All right. Let's dive into this one with these two fine gentlemen. We have here today Preston Pish of the Investors Podcast Network. How's it going, man? What's going on? Good to be here. Just ready to chill and, and talk some Bitcoin. Andy, author of Why Buy Bitcoin, financial advisor. Welcome to the show, man. Yeah, hell yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm still jacked up on uh, Preston's last uh, TIP episode, by the way, which, ah. was, which was an all-star uh, all cast, Luke Roman and, and Lit Alden and Jeff Booth and... Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm still coming down I, from that one. I'll tell you, I when I when I was done recording that, I went into the <laughs> kitchen and my wife was there and I said, you know, I feel like I just talked to like three of the smartest people on the planet right now. Cause he's right. and and I also shot uh Jeff Booth a text <laughs> and I said, Yo, Lynn Alden is uh she's kind of at a different level, man. She <laughs> she is really intelligent. Like I feel like I've interviewed a lot of people through the years and I'm telling you, she is insanely intelligent. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All she is. And so we're, so we're all, all of your guests and, and the host too, of course. So <laughs> I'm excited to get into it with you and I'm almost celebrating also just FYI next a week from today will be the one year anniversary of this guy. So I couldn't nice. help myself. Congrats. Congrats. Yeah. That's awesome. People don't know how much work it is to, to put a book together. It is a lot of work, man. Yeah, you're working on one? No. <laughs> Not only no, but hell no. <laughs> you're too smart. You're too smart for that. <laughs> Dude, it's just so much work. 
It's a, it's a lot of, and I don't like writing. To be honest with you, I'm not a. I, I don't. I don't enjoy writing, so it's it's a chore for me. Yeah. Hey, man. We we each uh, we each do what uh, works for us, and we try to contribute our our you know our two cents to the whole process. So it's great right. to be on with you. Yeah, great to be here with you as well, Andy. I am like Preston, a talker as well. I like to talk about <laughs> stuff. <laughs> let's talk about it. So let's get into it then. That's what we're here for. Uh, let's talk about the Jerome Powell speech. It's coming up tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern time. Um, it's said uh, that it's, you know, we're expected to hear some historic uh, changes in, uh, you know, an outlook of policy from the Fed. Um, of course, it's, you know, the language that we're going to hear tomorrow in the speech is probably, it's not going to be so arresting as the, uh, the titles, uh, the, you know, the headlines we've been reading about this speech. Um, it's said to be expected that we'll get a moderate inflation overshoot during this recovery phase of this cycle. Um, Andy, what are you expecting to hear tomorrow, man? And, uh, you know, if we hear that, how do you think it's going to affect the markets and Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah. Couple things. So the first thing is, you know, as part of my business, as you mentioned, I'm a wealth manager. We subscribe to a few sources of research, right? Including some macro ones. And I don't want to uh, throw anyone under the bus, but let's say that I got a note in recently from one of our research providers talking about how, you know, they, they probably won't announce yield curve control explicitly, but they may announce a new policy, which is symmetry in the inflation target which is to say for every year they undershot on their, on their stated target of 2% of inflation, they ought to overshoot. Now, I haven't got my head around this because one of the things I included in my book was the Fed has been going on record already in the FOMC minutes and their reports talking about how the target is symmetric, which you know, they don't state it explicitly, but the impl implication is that if, they, you know, if they've been undershooting on PCE or, C or CPI for a while, according to their measurements, then they ought to overshoot for a while. So I think that's what some people are expecting is they'll maybe talk about symmetry of the target. And to me, that's not news because um, they've already been publishing that in their notes, but that's one idea or one angle. The second perspective I take is <laughs> zoom out, right? Who cares you know, what Powell says at this meeting or in this speech, you know, the next meeting, a few meetings from now, we know, Preston knows, you know, where, where this thing is going, right? Because we know what the debt levels are. And so what happens, you know, week to week, month to month, it'll matter short term in terms of, you know, where gold goes, where treasuries go. Um, there'll be some, some noise and fluctuations. I'm not as focused on those. I'm, as, I'm, I'm focused on the, the big picture in the long term and where it's likely to play out over a series of years. So I'll leave it there. Yeah, I get, my only comment is they're saying that they're going to let inflation go, but at the end of the day, they can't allow for rates to go up. Like they just cannot from a fiscal standpoint, uh, especially at the rate that we're, that we're issuing money right now is they can't afford for, for uh, debt yields to go up. And so whenever I think of somebody saying, oh, we want inflation to come in. Well, if inflation's 3%, the, the price of debt is a premium above whatever that is, right? So they're saying one thing. And then on the fiscal side, they're, they're, you know, the, the elected officials are spending at rates that are accelerative and actually require uh, you know, yields to go significantly lower than where they're at in order to you know, keep this, 
thing. Uh, I don't even know what to call this anymore as far as what the economy is on a global scale going and rolling. So it's, it's an interesting narrative that, that he's saying. I think, you know, if I was going to summarize what he's trying to say is we're, we're conducting an experiment. We're going to print as much as we can to see if we can actually even get inflation to occur is, is kind of how I guess I'm reading this announcement tomorrow. And when you look at, um, when you go back to Paul Volcker and his big moment back in the early 80s when he you know, was basically saying, I'm going to get inflation under control and I'm going to uh, you know, do everything I can to do that, you, you have, it seems like Jerome Powell's trying to do the exact same thing, but in, in, in the inverse, like a 180 of that. Yeah. And, and like it's... He's the anti-Volker. Yeah, it's like the anti-Volker uh, speech. And what's crazy is history is not going to judge this moment in time like Paul Volcker was judged because, you know, every, you talk to any central banker, you talk to any person in finance, they'll tell you that Paul Volcker was basically the savior of inflation and got the economy functioning normally again and all these things. And I think you, Jerome Powell's trying to have that moment right now. And I just don't think that he realizes that once inflation shows up, it's going to... Uh, it's not going to just show up a little bit. It's going to show up in a way that they just can't even imagine. So it's going to be interesting. Agreed. So I'm starting to, piece, I mean, I, I am learning about money and about finance along with a lot of other Bitcoiners, you know, as, as we are being taught what money really is coming, uh, coming from our Keynesian roots, which is, you know, all that most of us know about money. So I'm kind of piecing together how this all works. And the, so the Fed will basically, when we say print money, they will basically put assets on the books of banks and then banks have to lend it out for it to get into the, into the real economy, right? So, or you can just like give money, UBI, right? UBI style. But point being, you've got to get money out into the, the real economy, the M2 supply, as, we, as it's called, I guess, um, in order for you to eventually see inflation. Is that a correct understanding? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you want to take that or you want me to take a shot at it. This, uh, is, this is what I would, this is the best way I can explain it is to give you a handoff to something that's going to explain it way better than I can verbally. Yeah. You have to go and watch Ray Dalio's video. Uh, it's titled How the Economic Machine Works. Ray, for people that are listening, don't know who the guy is. He's, you know, anyone in finance will tell you that this guy is, is he runs the biggest hedge fund in the world. Uh, during the 2008-2009 crash, Ray was up in double digits in the green when the rest of the market was down 50-60%. He understands how, how all this functions. The, he, go watch this video. It's a 30-minute video. I, I tell you, it's probably the best lesson you will ever get on how the economic machine works, and it will do a fantastic job of explaining a lot of things. If I was going to summarize that, this video for you real quickly... You got to think about what that credit and real baseline dollars spend exactly the same. So if you pull a dollar bill out of your, out of your, uh, you know, out of your pocket, that will spend the exact same way as if I went to a bar and I said, Hey, let's start a tab, right? Give me the beer and I will, I promise to pay you at the end of the night. I just effectively created money when I did that. Even though there was no money exchanged at that moment in time, there was money creation that, that occurred. So when you look at the credit that was in the system at the end of the 2008-2009 time, a majority of that was a promise. 
that I will pay you at the end of the night kind of thing, right? A majority, if you were going to take all the promises and you'd add them with the monetary baseline, like hard uh, money slash currency that was in the system, and you'd, you'd slap those two things together, the promises were way more plentiful than the baseline money. And so what has effectively happened since 2008 is that all the, the central banks have done is they've come in with QE and they've swapped monetary baseline money for or currency because you can get into a debate on what is quote unquote money, right? But let's just say they, they swapped the currency for the promises and they did this in a major way. But the problem is when you do that, you're, you're funneling all that money into the people who owned the promises, okay? So like if you owned a bond, you're now getting this first cut of this freshly printed money and, and they're basically saying, I'll buy that at pretty much any price. They kept bidding it, bidding it, bidding it. That's why the yields went down, down, down. And now you're at a point where the rates are getting polarized. They've, they've swapped so many freshly printed money for these promises that they've pushed the yields down to nothing, yeah. right? And now you're, now you're at this end game. And now that's why everyone's saying, oh, well, we're going to do MMT, which is just basically saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to try this crazy science experiment and push rates below zero. And we're going to go in the negative territory, right? So that's... That's the best way I can ex explain it, but I promise you this Ray Dalio video that you can watch for 30 minutes is going to graphically show some of this to you. It's going to explain it way better than I ever could. And Andy, I'm sure you have some key additions to some of those comments. Yeah, so I love that you mentioned the Dalio video, how the economic machine works, because true story, okay, uh, we're reaching over to my way back machine here and turning the crank. <laughs> 2016, I sent a memo to all my clients. And it was a couple of messages. The first was, watch this video. <laughs> and I included a link and I said, watch it and then watch it again, you know, and when you're ready, talk with me about it. So 100%, I agree with you. Um, you know, we turned our clients onto that about four years ago now. Um, and it is spot on. Second thing we told them was, because interest rates are so low already, and they can't go up, as, as Preston pointed out, right? Because if they did, you'd have a depression. Um, because of that, you know, basically returns, future investment returns in general are going to be lower than they've been in a very, very long time. Like in probably your entire lifetime, right, dear client. <laughs> the, the, you know, the double-digit annual returns in the stock market globally are a thing of the past. By the way, we've basically seen that in U.S. stocks, or specifically in the internet giants, that's another topic of conversation. But so far, it's, it's played out, lower returns. So that's one thing. Um, spot on, I agree about the, you know, the idea of creating credit. Dalio talks a lot about this. It is crucial. I actually remember specifically from that video, if you watch that video, one of the things you'll see, he's got a graphic. He's got base money in the U.S. And the, the number used in the video, I think, is about $3 trillion. And then there's, he zooms out, right? There's like three stacks of dollar bills and the video zooms out and there's, you know, 50 stacks of dollar bills in the background. And I think the ratio at the time in the video is about 50, right, to three. And what he said was there's $3 trillion of base money. And on top of that, there's $50 trillion of credit, right? And that was just in the US. So Preston spot on, right? The multiple of credit on top of base money is enormous. And that notion of creating credit, this is what Jim Grant, right, James Grant, He's been around Wall Street forever. He's been a gadfly. He's been a gold bug for longer than I've been alive, okay? Um, he talks about credit being, quote, money of the mind, right? 
It's this idea that, yeah, if you transact in money, that's the endowed asset. As soon as you create credit, like Preston des described, now you've time shifted that transaction or the settlement of it from the present in terms of money to the future. You've created that debt that you promised to, you know, to settle in the future. And, um, and so this is crucial to understand the money supply. Now, when you're talking about you know, printing, the Fed printing the money and pushing it into the banking system, yeah, so far, you know, the story of the last few years has been that creating the dollars and trying to push them into the system hasn't really, um, it hasn't really created uh, a lot, it hasn't created excess credit incrementally. Um, now, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens now that some of the rules have changed, okay? It used to be that banks, when they bought treasuries, had to reserve some capital against those assets, right? Guess what? They don't have to anymore, <laughs> at least as of a few months ago. So that requirement is gone. And the second thing that's gone away is, is interest on excess reserves, right? It used to be that the banks could park money at the Fed and earn 2%, no risk, right? Free, <laughs> free return. Uh, you put money at the Fed as a bank, you get 2% annualized, and there is literally zero credit risk associated with that. So why wouldn't you do that? Well, now the, you know, the interest on excess reserves has been taken almost to zero. And so it will be interesting to see how the banks deal with that, right? Will they push out more loans to the corporate sector? Will they push out more loans to the housing sector? I can tell you the housing sector is pretty hot right now. I re refinanced my mortgage. I got you know, like a lot of clients who've done the same. So the, 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 the ground is moving and shifting with respect to the credit creation on top of the base money. That's how I see it these days. Yeah. Hey, Brady, I just want to uh, just say a moment for Matt D'Souza, who passed away. It was, was a close friend of mine. I'm pretty sure anybody that's been in the space for any amount of time knows Matt. And um, just, I, I was crushed seeing that because I didn't know that he was, that he was uh, struggling right now. And uh, what, a, what a great guy. I just, I feel bad that um, I couldn't do more. Just I, the way I found out was just kind of crushing, to be honest with you. I, I feel terrible. Yeah, man, I appreciate that. It's uh, terribly sad news today, the loss of Matt D'Souza. Uh, he was CEO of a couple of um, companies in the space, most recently of a, you know, important Bitcoin mining company. Um, you know, a very smart uh, rising star in the industry, so definitely will be missed. Yeah. Thanks for uh, taking in a moment. Yeah, I want to I want to give add add the two cents. The thing, the lens that I really appreciated that he brought to the industry was what you just mentioned, um, uh, Brady. Was you know insight into the mining space, which is yeah. notoriously you know sort of the most opaque. Um, we all sort of wave our hands. Most many of us wave our hands about you know what's going on in that part of the ecosystem, and it's so critically important to the whole picture. And um, so I didn't know him personally, but. But uh, his, you know, his intellectual um, contributions will be missed. Yep, absolutely. So, getting back to this discussion about the about you know just how money works and how like what we can expect in the future with these changes, right? I, I want to talk a little bit about indicators that you guys are watching. Uh, something that Bitcoiners listening could keep an eye on, that kind of like guide or give us a little insight to what's going to happen in in the nearish future. Um, a couple that have caught my eye just from watching like charts on the St. Louis Fed website and stuff 
Uh, one is the velocity of money, which has fallen off a cliff. It's been going down quite a bit since, like steadily since 2008, but it's completely fallen off a cliff now. It's almost down, down it's down below 1.1 for uh, Q2 this year, which would be expected with some of the things that's going on. But this is alarmingly low. Going back to 1960, which is how far the data goes back in the St. Louis Fed, it's by far like lower than it's ever been. Um, and David Lawrence on Twitter brought up another good one, the debt to GDP ratio. So um, he says that a study by Hirschman Capital shows that out of 51 cases of government debt breaking above 130% of GDP since 1800, 50 have defaulted. The only exception so far is Japan. Um, so what, like, first of all, you comment on either of those uh, indicators, um, please. And also what other indicators are you guys watching uh, to kind of keep a you know, finger on the pulse of what's happening? So I guess I'll start with Hirschman. Uh, coincidentally, I went to grade school with him, <laughs> with Brian Hirschman. Um, and in fact, I, I hadn't seen him in, I don't know, 25 years probably. But I ran into him at a, at a CFA like drinks event. Uh, I think it was two years ago. Actually, it was, yeah, I think it was two years ago um, when you know, the, the book was still a glimmer in my eye. And back then I was still, you know, I hadn't quite uh, found found true north on Bitcoin, right? I was still kind of dabbling in, uh, in a couple other things. Um, and it sort of surprised, I had a conversation with him and it, and it sort of surprises me that he's relatively dismissive about, about Bitcoin, at least as it, as it relates to gold. Um, I hope he'll come around, but um, I haven't, you know, validated his research or done anything like that, but I have to agree that the history of fiat monies uh, is not, um, it's not great, right? Basically, they all fail eventually. And, um, and the debt to GDP ratio, you know, it matters. Um, the second thing I'll say is, we're, it's true, we're, we're basically at, at record levels of debt to GDP, excluding the unfunded entitlements, <laughs> right? In other words, if US, you know, debt to GDP is, you know, approaching, uh, what is it? Total, if you've got government plus corporate plus household, you know, it's 350% of GDP roughly. And then the unfunded entitlements are about another 1,000%. <laughs> so um, it's pretty mind-boggling. And, and when you add, the, I don't think, because of the demographics, right, of the, of the developed world, of the, rest of the Western world, we've never faced this kind of, a, you know, entitlement funding problem. Like nothing in history, I don't think, even comes close so my guess is that he's focused or that, again, I haven't delved into the research. A lot of people do focus on the sort of outright debt to GDP. They talk about government debt to GDP, you know, over 100%. Then you talk about, you know, layering the, the corporate and the household, you get to 300 plus percent, depending on the country. But that's, you know, kind of where we are in the US as well as much of the Western world. And then, yeah, you look at the entitlements and uh, makes your head spin. So I don't know, I'll, leave, I'll hand it off there. Uh, one of the metrics that I look at a lot is the total assets of major central banks. And I'm just kind of watching that the explosive trend that we've seen over the last 10 years is continuing just to, you know, just confirm that everything that we talk about uh, most of the time, which is all this printing is going to start manifesting itself in, in some way or some fashion. Um, and, and we already are seeing it manifest itself and I can get into some of what those things are. But uh, so I look at that chart, I see that, that trend and I look at all of the central banks combined, the, 
uh, Yardini Research puts out a, uh, a report on a daily basis. I think it's automated, but all they're doing is they're basically summing up all of those central bank reports and then dropping them onto a chart. It's a wonderful chart. You can just search uh, Yardini uh, Global Central Bank Balance Sheet and it's the first thing that'll come up on Google. So I'm looking at that a lot just to confirm that there's no change in, in that trend. In fact, it's, it's demonstrating that the trend is accelerating. Um, and then the other thing that I, I would tell you I pay even more attention to is just um, really kind of Bitcoin and the hashing. I pay very close attention to the fact that you're not seeing uh, miners taking their processing power to a different uh, blockchain or a different protocol. I think that's very bullish for the idea that um, I, I have the opinion that uh, the miners set the, set the floor of, of the price curve. And there's people that disagree with that opinion. I think that whenever you're seeing that price floor get set, I think what, what you're seeing is a structural limitation on the amount of Bitcoin that there is to be sold at that time. And I think that the miners play an important part in that. And I think as long as you have, um, as, as long as you have Bitcoin as a commodity and you have the demand flow for the use of that protocol, I think that you're going to continue to see the miners set the floor. And I think that that's one of the reasons why I have such a bullish argument in the coming 12 months is because based on that re reduction in the flow, the whole stock to flow model, I find valid, but I think it only continues to be valid as long as um, miners continue to bring their hashing power and all, all of their processing power to the Bitcoin protocol. And so um, if, if I would see a change in that, that for me would be something to pay close attention to. And we're seeing the exact opposite of that. We're seeing that we're seeing, we're seeing hashing more and more hashing power. In fact, we just hit an all time high. So from my vantage point, all those fundamental indicators that I'm using to uh, uh, continue to have faith in, in the uh, protocol and the direction that this is all going are all in, in the green and um the, the thing that I'm paying close attention to is, is as well is when you look at the stock to flow chart, um, and I personally like the 463 day moving average. I can get into that if you guys have an interest in talking about it. Um, I like using that as kind of the, uh, the, the stick or the measuring stick for the speed at which this coming 12 months is probably going to play out from a price standpoint. Um, when you look at that 463 moving average during the last, um, having to the next, uh, I call it price orbit, right? Um, typically, the price didn't get below 20 to 25% below that 463-day moving average. And so uh, what I found interesting is uh, this price after the halving went sideways for a quarter, which is what we pretty much all expected. And then once the, the price was almost exactly 20% below that uh, 463 day moving average that was moving out. That's when you saw the price just ramp up and take a run. We're seeing a price correction 20% below that 463 right now is around 10,700, 800, somewhere around in there. So I would suspect that that would probably be the price floor that we'd see for this little dip that we're seeing right now. And I would expect the next run to, to jump up into the 14 or even maybe even the 15,000 ranges as it's moving forward. So I'm just watching those metrics. I'm, I'm looking for that thesis to continue to play out. Um, 
and so far it's it's been right on cue. I mean, it really has not deviated too far from what I expected uh, from some of those metrics. And those are the things I'm looking at from a day-to-day basis just to kind of make sure that everything's playing out as, as, as expected. Yeah, that's well said. I just want to augment that. I mean, credit so far to, uh, you know, 100 trillion, uh, the NIM, who put out the model. But credit to you, credit to you, Preston, for, you know, focusing on it and supporting it. And so far, it's playing out, right? I mean, there's definitely been some skeptics. You know, I've kind of gone back and and forth, to be honest with you. I sort of, I recognize it as, well, it's been right so far. And, you know, it's a decent number of data points. And, you know, we'll see what happens. But guess what? <laughs> it seems to be playing out. It seems to be playing along the, the four-year halving cycle. You know, the, we're not too far off the, the quote-unquote target, um, as you pointed out. And uh, we're above the, you know, the likely floor. So it seems to be happening. The other thing I'd highlight, too, which has you know, nothing to do with sort of the uh, endogenous metrics of the Bitcoin network itself, is the narrative, right, and gold. So it's partly a story of the dollar, right? It's a partly a story of, I guess, you know, the, the world recognizing that the Fed will print as much as it takes. And uh, that's, you know, the, the expectations piece. And then also the literal, oh, you know, the actual number, quantity of dollars that are getting, you know, shoveled out the door to, to buy government debt. Um, but the gold, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, there's hardcore gold bugs and there's Bitcoin, you know, enthusiasts and then there's, there's tweeners. Um, a lot of the Bitcoin enthusiasts, uh, I don't know, they, they have a little, little, little bit of beef with the gold guys. I love seeing gold rally because, you know, every, every dollar per ounce that gold goes up is market share that you know, the Bitcoin's going to take later. So <laughs> when I speak to my clients these days, I keep it really simple. <laughs> Digital gold. And right now that is more than enough with respect to the narrative, with respect to the value proposition you know, whether it's institutional money, you know, coming in, you know, Paul Tudor Jones, uh, retail clients coming in, all that stuff. Um, it just augments. It, it, it's a very strong narrative, let's say, that augments or echoes or reflects the, the fundamentals that, that Preston talked about. Yeah. Nothing, nothing drives psychology more than if people feel like their neighbor's getting ahead in front of them. And, uh, you know, that's my concern for the gold piece is... I think by Christmas, you know, based on the stock to flow model and the stuff we were talking about earlier, as far as the expectations of where we should be at at certain points in time, um, I mean, you're, you're, you should be making an all time, a new all time high around that time frame is Christmas of 2020. And so if that's true, that means we've got 80, 90% upside from here, um, which is insane, right? Because I mean, we don't, there's not that many more months between now and Christmas. Uh, so to, to think that that much of a, of a jump could occur between now and then is going to be a dramatic, dramatic narrative that I think very few are ready for because there's no way in the world gold with its market cap, and I'm just going to use a generic figure, let's just say it's, it's $10 trillion, which is uh, 50 times higher than Bitcoin's market cap today. There's no way you're going to see anything remotely close to that on gold's uh, movement. So um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to create a, a marketing buzz uh, in financial news 
And, and then you combine that with the backdrop of all this printing. And I mean, I don't care who you are in the market right now. You, you could know nothing about finance. You could be the world's worst financial student. And you know what's on that person's mind right now? They're, they're walking around and they're saying, you know, they just can't keep printing money like this, can they? <laughs> that's, that's what they're telling themselves. And they don't know anything, but they're asking themselves that question. And I think that when you got people asking that kind of question, you have something that's been around for more than a decade. You have something that has done over 200% on the year, whatever it is, um, it's going to attract a lot of interest. It's going to attract a lot of discussion. And it's, it's marketing that you just can't even, if you had to put a dollar figure on, on how much marketing that would cost on a global scale to put out that much discussion, dude, you can't even imagine what the price would be. And it's going to be great. It's going to be, uh, it's going to be a very Merry Christmas. Uh, you heard it here. Uh, Preston Pish called All Time High by uh, Christmas time. I can promise you that if we, uh, if we get an, all, an all-time high in Bitcoin by Christmas, uh, it's going to be a giant beef roast in the Edstrom household. And, uh, and if we don't get an all-time high, it's still going to be a giant beef roast uh, for Christmas in the Edstrom household. So there you go. I mean, it's not any, there's not any magic to what I'm saying. I mean, it's just, it's the, it's the math. It's the stock to flow model that is showing some of these these, uh, these timelines associated with the price. And um, when you look at the 463-day moving average on the stock to flow, and then you look 20% below that, you're pretty much at 20,000 at December 25th. So that's kind of why I'm saying that time frame. And I think that, you know, it might even be conservative. Um, Hope you're right. Based, based on the stock to flow model. We'll see. I mean, it's, there's, this is like nothing I've ever seen in finance where somebody can say something like that, which just sounds totally ludicrous for somebody that's not dialed into why that might be playing out. But at the end of the day, it comes down to math and the math of the reduced flow of, of issuance of coins combined with the people that have been in this space for this long, right? And are not selling their coins for nothing. Like I've been in this space since 2015 and there are tons of people out there just like me. And let me tell you, after they've been riding this Bronco for as long as we've been riding it and seen what we've seen, like these volatility moves that we're seeing right now are a total joke, a total joke, right? This is nothing. Um, I mean, if, if you were riding this Bronco in December of 2017 or, you know, earlier, and let's, let's not kid ourselves. The people with big positions, they were. <laughs> they were. So they're not selling their supply, I hate to tell you. I know I'm not. And so it's that, that reduction in the amount of flow that's being issued through the rewards is going to have a dramatic impact in the, 12, in the coming 12 months, in my humble opinion. Agreed. Damn. Stack those stats, everyone. Um, and, you know... <laughs> This is, this is another reason why I love Swan and why I love, uh, you know, automatic recurring buys and just getting as many hodlers as possible, you know, buying on a regular basis, you know, smash buy when you want to, right? Um, you know, like when you're listening to Preston Pish talk. But, you know, that regular stack is important too because you got to think of it like a floor. It's like the hodl floor is what I like to call it. And every, you know, every additional stacker just kind of raises that up a little bit more. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, I think I think that's an important uh, phenomenon that is going to be you know more impactful as the auto stacking gets more and more popular. So all right, we're Brady, can really- I just can I just double yeah. down really fast? Can I just yes, double please. down really fast? Like so, I mean, today this is like, I don't even know if if you were going to bring this up, right? Fidelity, the big announcement uh, <laughs> that, that hit the news, right? So like eight point three trillion dollars in their customer funds, right? Let's just say they get 0.01% of that. I mean, and they're, they're now saying they're going to do a Bitcoin fund only. I think that's how it was you know, printed in the article. I mean, this is nuts. This is, we're not talking about something that's, that's like some nerds go into a, uh, you know, some, some little affair in exchanging tokens on their smartphones. We're talking about like the biggest banks on the planet dedicating all their resources in a very trying time to this thing called Bitcoin. I mean, it's, this is, if, if people are ignoring this, they're just, they're not paying attention. And, and if you think you can put this genie back in the bottle at this point is, as you got companies dropping $250 million of their, of their current assets on their balance sheet straight into Bitcoin instead of anything else. I mean, you're just totally kidding yourself. I want to, I want to augment that too. Preston's right to focus on fidelity. One of the magical things about Fidelity is Fidelity has huge market share, right, in the 401k business, right, in the retirement plan business. And the thing about the retirement plan business is a lot of that is self-directed, which means it's, you know, it's basically people working at companies, ordinary people, they're socking away some savings, some retirement money. They're they're stacking, you know, today they're stacking stonks, (laughs) but, but, um, you know, it's one thing for us to talk about, oh, the institutional demand is coming. You know, when is the pension money going to buy Bitcoin? Well, that could take a while. You know, the hedge funds, the family offices are already in. You know, the hedge funds are in to some degree, like the macro guys. You know, I'm doing my, my best to bring in the wealth managers. But it's still really a retail-driven phenomenon. And as soon as, you know, a couple or a few trillion dollars of custodied 401k assets have a way to buy Bitcoin. And, you know, it may not be this particular product that, uh, that Fidelity, you know, just made the filing for, but it'll be something, right? Um, Fidelity, they, they ain't put in years and years of work on this thing, as Preston pointed out, you know, to not basically win, right? To not win market share. There is, they know that there is, pick a number, you know, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of demand nascent embedded pent up in that 401k channel and um it's just waiting for the for the product it's just waiting for that proprietary fidelity product to be slotted into that uh you know into that chute for you know millions of americans tens of millions of americans potentially uh to buy to save for retirement i i think the the thing that's kind of exciting is the entrenchment that the companies are going to bring to it so like the, the micro strategy thing, I think this is just the tip of the iceberg and, and the conversation you were talking about earlier, Andy, where Jeff Booth and, and the others were, we were talking and Jeff is saying, you know, this is a boardroom discussion at this point. And Jeff's a guy who sits on a lot of boards and I'll tell you, he knows a lot of people way more than I know, uh, especially out in Silicon Valley, which in my opinion are going to be the companies that figured this out first. So, I mean, Apple what is it, $200 billion of 
quote unquote, fairly liquid assets on their balance sheet. Um, I mean, you don't need much, much of anything uh, going into Bitcoin. I mean, even if they did 1% or even 0.1%, I think the, the narrative that's associated with Apple buying Bitcoin and sticking it on their balance sheet is going to send a, a shot around the world to every other tech company in Silicon Valley that has any type of free cash flows. And let me tell you, the Googles, the Amazons, they're not going to just sit back and say, well, let me, let me think about this. We've got the smartest software engineers on the planet that work for these companies. And they're now allowing this to flow onto the balance sheet. They're saying that there's something here. Come on, man, get, get out of here. Like that, them starting to put that on their balance sheet is just going to start something that I don't think anybody is prepared for or that can fully understand the, the depth that it's going to bring. And from, from a legal framework, you talk about deep-seated entrenchment into the financial rails at that point. How in the world are you possibly going to start telling companies or anybody that, they, that there's restrictions on owning this and, th- and this and that? Because then it's going to turn into, you give it one quarter and you look at MicroStrategy's market cap after one quarter of this, okay? And let me tell you, it's going to be a, a major discussion point as to how much exposure. The, the question is be, how much exposure should we allocate into this to remain competitive to certain companies? Because they're going to, they're going to have the ability to go do acquisitions and all sorts of things that they just didn't have that flexibility to before, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the micro, so the MicroStrategy news came out. And again, your amazing episode that just came out, as you say, Jeff, Jeff Booth said, yeah, the boards are talking about this. Okay, in my prior life, before I was a wealth manager, you know, I worked at a hedge fund and I worked in private equity. So I was, I was invo- involved with a bunch of boards, actually. Went to a lot of board meetings. And I, had, I was thinking about this a little more, and what I realized was MicroStrategy took it all the way, right? They allocated, I don't, you probably remember the number, Preston, something like- 250 uh, million. There you go. Like, it's like a third of their cash or something. 21,749 right? Bitcoin. Right. 21,000, okay. sorry. <laughs> so that, that's a big move. That's a board level decision. But the other thing, interesting thing to think about is what's not a board level decision, right? You got the board, okay. You got the CFO. CFO either reports to uh, the board directly or to the CEO. And then usually sitting under the CFO is the treasurer. Well, there are sort of materiality limits, right? In other words, yeah, you probably got to go to the board if you're going to put a third of your, uh, <laughs> of your treasury in Bitcoin. But what if you just want to put 1% or 2% of your treasury in Bitcoin? That doesn't have to go to the board, right? That's, that's probably a CFO you know, level decision or even a treasurer level decision. You know, The treasurer may have delegation authority from the CFO who has delegation authority from the board. You know, yeah, you want to put you know, 1% to 2% of our, of our treasury in some other form of money you know, than dollars? you know, along with the euros and the yen and, you know, whatever else we're holding, sure, go for it. Now, those things won't get announced necessarily, right? Because they're not material, you know, at the shareholder level. But you may see basically unannounced buying that doesn't even require board authorization. So that's incremental demand, potentially. So this is, this is the part that so few, in my personal opinion, get with this micro strategy deal. So it was a publicly traded company. And that's why I think it was so weird to see 
what we saw play out that they that they stuck so much of this in the Bitcoin. Well, when you start digging into the voting rights of the equity, Michael Saylor had a complete control of the company. He can make whatever decision he wants and all the other shareholders can do nothing about it because he has majority voting rights. So that's why you saw him take such a drastic position. All these other publicly traded companies are going to be tied down into these audit boards. They're going to be way more conservative. They're just not going to be able to do that, most likely because when you're dealing with publicly traded companies, having a shareholder like Michael Saylor, where he has a, a controlling share of the entire business, is very rare. Now, when you get into the private equity market, okay, guess what? It's not like that. And guess what? They don't have to report what's on their flipping financials to the public. Okay. I have my own business. Why do you think I've been talking about this for the last six months? Right? I mean, come on. Because I'm doing it, right? <laughs> so here's here's the other thing that people don't realize. So let's just say that this stock to flow model is right. Let's just run down this path. Okay. And Michael Saylor dropped $250 million in the Bitcoin. Okay. That means that um, his company could 10 x the, the balance sheet for that Bitcoin that he's holding could 10x okay, in the, in, within 12 months okay, based on the stock to flow value, uh, model. 10x. Now, for a company like his that's banging out $30 million on an annual basis, bottom line, net income, they're making $30 million a year. How long does it take MicroStrategy to make that much money that he just made through his Bitcoin investment? How many years does he have to, to sweep that net income into his retained earnings onto his balance sheet? How many years? You're not going to believe the number because I've done the math. I think I can do the mental math. Yeah, go ahead. 83, uh, yeah, 83 years is how long it would take that company to collect that, that much in retained earnings. They'd have to do 83 years of business to make that much money. Okay. So now when you think about what that allows his company from a strategy standpoint to do, dude, he's in a, he's in a completely different category from, from a business standpoint. He can go out and buy like a majority of his competitors in the space. He can go into whole different avenues. He can start going upstream, downstream into their, uh, their product mix, right? And this is a company that has very stagnant net income. They have, for the last 10 years, their net income has not really changed at all. So to, to capture 83 years worth of, of um, retained earnings in a year is, for, for a company of this size, this is a billion-dollar company is mind-blowing. I mean, you just can't even, you can't even fathom something like that. The, the war chest that that gives you is, is unimaginable. Now, for somebody listening to this that's skeptical, they're, they're obviously saying, well, yeah, he, but that, all that stock-to-flow stuff has to come true. You're 100% right. But in my opinion, that's a way high, higher probability than people realize. And, and obviously, Michael Saylor thinks the same. I mean, we've also got, I mean, there's a bunch of buzz. So we've got you know, fidelity and, and uh, institutional, you know, like on-ramps coming, coming in, continuing to come in. We've got, you know, reserve assets on corporate balance sheets uh, as, you know, obviously MicroStrategy is the biggest news, but a couple of small businesses have come out and said that they're doing the same thing. Uh, you know, if, if we do get continued price appreciation over the next 
six, seven, eight months, like that's just going to continue. It's a self-reinforcing loop. Price goes up, more businesses, you know, start to invest or diverse their cash supply into, into Bitcoin. Um, we had George Gammon on a couple of episodes ago and he's down in St. Barts right now, which is, you know, an island full of hedge fund managers, basically. And he's, he's like, when we go to parties, uh, you know, after, you know, we talk about the markets and whatever, it, the people really want to talk about is Bitcoin. Like the night kind of settles into talking about Bitcoin. And, you know, I, here's a tweet from um, this guy, JP, uh, Dangerous Freedom on Twitter. Um, there was a thread about, you know, high net worth individuals into Bitcoin. This guy says, yes, I can confirm. I'm in Silicon Valley, LA, um, ultra high net worth space. And we just got the green light to start selling clients Bitcoin. We have around 50 million in total commitments thus far, ranging from 100,000 to 5 million in size. Some of the names buying Bitcoin would definitely make the news of public. So, I mean, there's these, all these rumors around high net worth individuals as well piling in. What are you guys hearing? I mean, you guys both have your ear to the ground in, in different ways in the finance world. Um, is this something that you guys have, have caught wind of as well? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely around and there's definitely conversations being had. Um, in one respect, I'm tainted, right? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm like one of these rare guys in the wealth management business you know, who's been, who's been pounding the table and I chill my book. And so, you know, people have already heard it for me, you know, if they're talking to me. Um, so that may sort of mute to mute the signal, but I will say that for me, again, I just, I, I return to that hard money uh, thesis, right? I, I'll say one thing that's new, you know, for me and my, my business, well, somewhat new, which was, you know, we started buying gold in 2016. And then obviously we discovered Bitcoin and, and started buying Bitcoin. But the asset allocation, you know, we have asset classes, right? We have, you know, U.S. stocks and foreign developed stocks and emerging market stocks and various classes of bonds and fixed income. And for the first time in the history of our firm, which is 32 years old, we have an allocation to what I call hard money assets, right? And hard money assets are the monetary asset that's hard <laughs> to make more of. It's hard to produce. It's hard to print. Now for us, and well, sorry, for the world, that's historically been gold. But as we see, you know, Bitcoin's just going to eat away, you know, market share from gold, right? It's going to be inexorable and it'll be, you know, cyclical and there'll be accelerating rates. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on Preston's team with respect to this is probably going to be a monster, you know, the next, the next 12 months, 18 months for Bitcoin, I'll be surprised if, it, if it's not a monster uh, year, year and a half for Bitcoin. Um, but, but yeah, the, the, the hard money asset thesis is what I've found resonates the most. I mean, this is going to sound crazy to a lot of listeners on this call, right? But there's plenty of investors, plenty of wealth managers who don't even own gold. Now, listeners will say, well, you know, gold's obsolete. Okay, fine. Um, I happen to believe that gold's going to do, you know, <laughs> going to do fine probably in the next five years. But in other, what I'm trying to tell you is there's many investors, Preston knows as well, who understand buying cash flowing assets like Warren Buffett. And they don't, you know, they don't understand buying non cash flowing assets. Like that's anathema to them. So people, there are some people who were so far behind that they couldn't even get, you know, their heads around sort of the Austrian school concept of, of, monetary asset that will survive, you know, the coming inflation. And they're just getting over that hump. And now they're trying to get over the, the Bitcoin hump. 
So it's, it's coming from all angles. You've got guys who just got into gold who are now sniffing around Bitcoin. You've got people who are, you know, really have actually done their homework now on Bitcoin uh, and are and are allocating. You know, it's it's usually fuzzy numbers. I mean, it's you don't get hard number disclosures generally of uh, what people are doing. But yeah, I'm seeing it all around me, I'm, and I'm hearing it that people are are keying into hard money assets, and they've started to figure out that Bitcoin is the hardest and the best of the hard money assets. Brady, like you, I've heard some pretty big names uh, out in the valley, and I I'm not at a at a, a position to be able to name who these people are in a public forum. But the rumors going around are people that everyone knows that are taking positions, and from what I understand, they're taking positions privately. I have not heard anything, obviously, on the corporate side. But I mean, come on, if you're if you're running a big a big multi-billion dollar company and you're taking private positions, you know, darn well, they're talking to whoever they are at their company to, to say, all right, well, what do we got to do to put this on the books? Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's all rumors at this point, but, uh, I think in the coming quarter, uh, I think in the coming three months, we're going to have a much better idea as to whether these rumors are true. We'll see it in the price. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let, let's talk about that. I mean, let's, because a lot of these people are getting in, um, you know, through, like, not with the base asset, like through futures or something like that, right? Um, so, you know, like, I, I know Luke Grauman talks about this, and I think maybe even did on, on the episode you, you did uh, last week, or wait, maybe it was earlier this week. Um, but the, the, that episode was amazing. Everybody's got to go and listen to it. Uh, the investors podcast with Lynn and Luke and Jeff, uh, was incredible. So anyway, Luke thinks that, you know, these paper instruments hamper the true price of gold. Um, are, should we have the same concerns that, you know, about Bitcoin, basically that this could happen? That I love this. Could, yeah. I love this question. I, I really want to bite on this one. So, um, here's the difference. So you can play the game. So this is, this is for people that aren't familiar with derivatives, right? You can, if, if you're a government entity or whoever, and you, you got deep pockets, this is how you can understand how you can manipulate a market through derivatives. Everyone's played a game of poker, right? You've played a game of poker. And when you play a game of poker and somebody says, hey, unlimited buy-ins, right? You, unlimited buy-ins. If you run out of money, you can buy back in and you can keep on playing. That's what the derivatives market can do to the price of something. So if you have really deep pockets, if you're playing poker with a billionaire and you have an unlimited buy-in, are you going to win? He could, that person could be the world's worst poker player. They're going to beat you because they can keep buying in and they can keep adjusting and, and doing that. That's what the derivatives market can do to something. Now, where I think that Bitcoin is very different from uh, normal markets is that it can be settled in Bitcoin digitally. What other, what other asset or, or commodity on the planet can you do this? Where you can settle, you can deliver the, the item at hand digitally. Okay, That's where I don't think this plays out anymore. It's because you do have um, Bitcoin settled derivatives. I think it blows the lid off of that situation now. Because, you know, if, 
if I say, hey, give me my Bitcoin, I want it delivered right now and here's the address to deliver it. It's not like I have to have some port open in New York City in order to receive so many bushels of whatever, right? That, that is gone. So that changes the whole dynamic of, and I said that to Luke one time, this, you know, this was not on that conversation. He brought, it, he brought his narrative to that conversation and I didn't bring it up, but I, I said that to Luke one time and he, <laughs> he kind of looked at me, he goes, hmm, I'll have to think about that. Um, but that's, that's my comeback to anybody that's saying that is, hey, you got, you got physically settled Bitcoin derivatives, which I think changes the game, man, in a major way. I, I think that's a very interesting, I think that's a very interesting perspective. Yeah. Gone, gone are the day. Well, I shouldn't say gone are the days, but yeah, you know, having to take delivery of those barrels of oil, you know, or having to force someone to, to deliver physical, you know, there's not a lot of barrier between delivering quote unquote, delivering physical, right? It's like, okay, go log in, sign the transaction, you know, send me the bitcoins. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty simple. Yeah. Uh, the second thing I'll, the second thing I'll say is um, here. Bitcoin's volatility, price volatility, is, uh, is our friend, so to speak, and I'll explain why. So when the futures first came out, and I don't remember if it was SIBO or CME, and it's been, I don't know, Preston, you probably remember, it's been 18 months now or, or two years. No, I guess it was, maybe it was late 2017 that the future, first futures contracts came out on Bitcoin. It was like uh, November, I want to say, of 2017. <clears throat> right. And you saw a lot of people attribute the the crash to the derivatives, and I'm thinking that's right. That is not what you, you just ran out of of more participants on the network. Yeah, in my yeah. opinion, what happened there? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so it was late 2017, and then um, it was um, it was the uh, ICE right Intercontinental Exchange came out with their with their futures product, or they announced it, you know in the summer of 18, but it took them, I don't know, 16 months to roll, roll it out. It took a while. I don't think it's gone too far. Okay, both, so what happened was interactive brokers, okay, $22 billion publicly traded, you know, big brokerage firm, right? One of the, one of the majors run by this guy, founded and run by this guy, Thomas, I think Petterfee is, is how you pronounce the last name. I'll never forget a, an interview he gave someone was asking him, you know, hey, are you going to support Bitcoin futures, right? And he said, yeah, and they published a letter on it too. But we are going to require, you know, 100% cash collateralization, right? Yeah. Why? Because Bitcoin is, as Preston might say, flipping volatile, <laughs> right? It is, the price can move a lot. So what does that mean? Well, if you are on the long side, okay, you're, you know, you've got unlimited upside and then on the downside, you can lose all your money, so to speak, but you can't lose more unless you're using leverage. But if you're on the short side of the contract, man, you can get R-E-K-T -R wrecked, right? <laughs> and so what that means is participants in the market, brokers, custodians, counterparties, they're not inclined to allow high leverage on these things. Now, Sure, you know, certain unnamed exchanges, you know, possibly domiciled in the, in the Seychelles uh, may allow, you know, leverage trading on Bitcoin. But when you talk about the larger entities and the institutions or let's say the powers that might be assumed to, you know, quote unquote, manipulate the market uh, downward using derivatives and specifically futures, 
those guys are, are, are scared. They're scared of the, of the vol in this thing. And so they're less likely, those counterparties are less likely to allow significant leverage. And, and moreover, anybody who's interested in, in manipulating the market knows that Bitcoin, you know, Bitcoin can go up two, three X in a very short period of time. And if you're on the short side of that trade, you know, you're, you're toast. So the nat- the very nature of Bitcoin as it relates to its volatility, as well as what Preston pointed out that, you know, the potentially more or less instant settlement makes Bitcoin a different animal uh, as it relates to, you know, mani- powers, you know, powers, shadowy powers behind the scene trying to manipulate price downward in my opinion. So here's what I love about derivatives in Bitcoin is like Andy just described, like, so I own, I own some call options, right? Not a big position relative to how I of just owning outright Bitcoin for many reasons, mostly the, the custody uh, risks and things like that. But I own some call options, long-term call options, right? Maturing in December of uh, 2021. So for the person who wrote that contract that I purchased, they had to cough up a, a full Bitcoin to write the, the contract for, for one Bitcoin having that call, right? For however many calls you buy. Uh, so now think about what that does. So let's say Brady wrote the contract. He has to take a Bitcoin. He has to put it into their custody, lock it up behind key until that contract matures in December of 21. So when we're thinking about supply, right? What does that do to the supply of Bitcoins that can now be traded on exchanges? It's not there anymore. It's sitting in some locker until December of 21, right? And you got people buying the living hell out of these things. And they're doing it on the short end too. And, and so like, I love the derivatives market. It's just, it's just locking up coins because you're talking about the volatility. Well, what do people want? They want they want a whole coin in there if they're buying a contract for a whole coin. And so, I mean, this is, it's exciting. It is. And that's right. I mean, that's how the prime brokerage, the way the prime brokerage, you know, business works at institutional scale is on normal, quote unquote, normal assets, regular way assets. What, what Preston described is, you know, writing a covered call, right? Some, some counterparty, you know, owns a Bitcoin and says, yeah, I don't think it's going to make it to, you know, 100K by the end of next year. So I'm happy to write Preston this contract. He'll pay me the premium. And, uh, it, it, you know, on the off chance that he's right, okay, he takes my Bitcoin and makes profit. But I don't think he's likely to be right. Now, because of the, uh, yeah, the huge potential volatility in Bitcoin, the, the, anyone who's involved in this trade is, is going to do what Preston describes. They're not going to write an uncovered contract. And moreover, you know, whoever's the custodian or prime broker sitting in between isn't likely to let him do that. This isn't true in you know, equities or you know, the treasury market or other major markets, right? You have hedge funds, especially some individuals as well, although it's, hard, it's harder to get as much uh, leeway, let's say, from your, from your broker if you're an individual. You got to have a lot of assets. But you know, if, if a hedge fund wants to basically write an uncovered option, um, you know, on some asset, I don't know, the S&P, what have you, the prime broker will look at the risk assessment and they'll look at the, you know, expected volatility of the underlying asset and they'll say, yeah, you know, if you po- post, you know, X amount of collateral, chances are 
you're going to be fine, right? Even if, even if the underlying, you know, goes up by 20% or goes up in a significant way in the meantime. But, but man, you can't, uh, I, I, I agree with Preston. There's, I doubt that there's much uncovered call writing in the, in the Bitcoin space or will be, you know, anytime soon. Yeah. Cause there's no way I would buy that contract unless it was right. You're, because there's too much, there's too much opportunity cost of just owning the underlying because now you got to, because the other consideration to, to these that I'm obviously doing is the, the tax piece to it. So if I'm not holding the, the call for more than a year, well, then I'm getting into a short-term capital gains tax. And then I've got to be exactly right based on the strike and like all those dynamics. And this is why I tell if, if you don't understand this stuff, like you should not be doing any of that stuff. You should be setting up an account at Swan <laughs> and doing your, your monthly buys, right? Like this is more like graduate level stuff that when you're talking about the upside that we're talking about here, you're just getting greedy. And that's why I would tell you the, the position size that I'm talking about is very small compared to the position that I have just in, in the underlying Bitcoins that you take your own private keys you know, for. Um, but the reason I guess we're talking about it is because we're talking about the supply of the coins. We're talking about how the rest of the finance industry is looking at this and how they're how are they going out and providing interest rates at five and six percent? Well, they're doing it by buying Bitcoin, stepping into the market, writing that call contract that I'm then buying, right? And then they're buying a put position at the same strike to protect their interest. They're maybe capturing 10% or whatever it is. They're giving you your 5% and they're keeping 5% for themselves. That's what's playing out. And people just don't understand all those dynamics. But your financiers, that's how they're playing it. And that's what they're doing. And their risk exposure, even though they're giving you 5%, is literally nothing because they wrote the contract and they bought the put. So they're, they're there covering themselves. Um, there's just the, that spread dynamic that's playing out that they can capture that and, and offer that, that yield. Yep. And just to augment, well, first of all, Preston, I'm, I'm sort of jealous of you for putting on the, you know, the long-term call. That's the trade, you know, that's the trade that, you know, there was, a, there was an opportunity a few months ago, I mean, obviously, you know, when Bitcoin really tanked, there was an opportunity, but, but there's an opportunity in the, in the summer when those calls were quite cheap and I sort of, I kicked myself for not making that trade, uh, <laughs> that trade myself. But your advice is good, which is for most listeners, uh, you can make plenty of money uh, stacking your sats, you know, plus buying the dips. Um, you know, there's, there's no real need to, uh, to get greedy uh, if, if it plays out as we think it will. So I'm going to work in a question here from YouTube. This is from Jack. Um, and it's a good one. I mean, we've, we've spent this, uh, this episode being pretty damn bullish about Bitcoin and we, you know, we're out on Twitter all the time talking about this, all this big news and, and it feels like all the stars are aligning the way the Bitcoiners had, you know, anticipated that they would. Um, but, Jack wants to know what is your biggest concern when it comes to holding Bitcoin long term. What's what's the downside? Preston, you want to start with that one? I'm sorry, I was responding to somebody who. Oh no worries, uh, Andy. You stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Are there oh, comments nice. I should be responding to? <laughs> Are you in the YouTube, Preston? Yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. Okay. Um, yeah. So yeah, the question on the table then is is what's your biggest concern when it comes to holding Bitcoin long term? I'll let Andy start. 
Yeah, biggest concern about holding Bitcoin long term. So I'm actually, the longer term we talk about, I'm probably the less concerned I am, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, we can, we can go through the whole laundry list of, you know, risks and, you know, how could it die, you know, someone discovers a bug in the code or, you know, someone somehow manages to bootstrap and, you know, an even better, you know, harder money, uh, internet, internet money based, uh, system. <sighs> These are all possibilities. Um, you know, the, the one thing I look for, well, actually you asked Brady, I think earlier, you know, what are the, what are the sort of the, the current indicators we're looking or, or at or, or things we're monitoring? Um, obviously I'm monitoring, you know, I'm monitoring government rectitude, <laughs> right? What, what would be bad news for Bitcoin? Oh, you know, they stopped printing uh, too many shrewd bucks, <laughs> um, yeah, right? I like they, that. If, right? If they actually stop running deficits and stop monetizing deficits, and pull the supply, you know, of money in, um, such that the dollar becomes, you know, harder than gold, right? That the, the inflation in the supply becomes lower than that of gold or even goes negative. Um, yeah, then I'm worried about Bitcoin, <laughs> but absent something like that, it's as you like to say, and others like to say, Brady, you know, TikTok next block. If the thing keeps cranking on blocks, and as Preston, you know, points out, if the hash rate, you know, basically keeps going up over time and uh, they keep printing the money and the debt, you know, is still high and, and rising, uh, it's hard to see, you know, what the major risks are in, in the long term, you know, other than the, you know, esoteric, you know, we, we don't, there's quantum computing and we don't get to a quantum hard, you know, system. And I don't want to spend 20 minutes talking about all those, you know, possibilities. Yeah. So yeah, I'll leave it there. I, I think that's the big biggest risk, uh, Brady, is if elected officials start becoming very fiscally responsible, it's it's not going to be good for Bitcoin. Yeah. So if if you're concerned about that, then it, Bitcoin <laughs> probably isn't the place to be. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I will I will answer it a little bit more seriously. <laughs> um. It goes back to what I was saying earlier, which is if, if I see that the hashing rate start to shift or it, it looks like miners are not profitable and you start to see them shift, that's whenever I have a lot of concern for the protocol. And, and we're not near anything like that. And I want to read this quote. This is a Satoshi Nakamoto quote from 2010. The quote says, the price of any commodity tends to gravitate towards the production cost. If the price is below cost, then production slows. If the price is above cost, profit can be made by generating and selling more. At the same time, the increased production would increase the difficulty pushing the cost of generating towards the price. And that quote for me sums up why stock the flow is valid. Because what you have is you have this this quantum leap that happens every four years, it, drive, it, it reduces that flow. The miners are mining that. They're taking their fiat dollars that they're expending. They're getting reward. They're get, receiving payment onto their balance sheet of Bitcoins, which they then have to sell in order to pay those fiat bills. So all they're doing is, is they're effectively executing killing fiat dollars through this mechanism of proof of work. 
and the price is getting polarized to that production cost. And I think that, and I'm not saying that when the stock to flow for this next orbit is 100K, that that's the production cost, that the production cost will be slightly underneath of that. But for simplicity, you can just think of those levels that the stock to flow is pumping out as being those production costs of the miners, right? And going to what that quote is. And so you can see when you look at that quote and the vision that he had for how this was all going to play out and how this is effectively a time fuse for entrenchment into the existing financial rails. And I think that's why you see the four-year cycles. That's why you see the thing playing out the way it is, is because he knew the only way something like this, or he, I say he, she, whoever, group of people, whatever it is, um, they knew they needed entrenchment. They knew that it had to uh, happen over a decade or whatever that would be. I fully believe that, uh, you know, based on, on some of this stuff, I think this person was a total savant, whoever they were, in understanding scarcity and understanding commodity prices and understanding a lot of these things that are totally built into this incentive structure. Now, what would, what would cause that to unravel itself? What would, would cause that to unravel itself is if there was not demand for the service and the product that are the, the commodity that's being pumped out. So what would cause somebody to, what would cause an organization to, to move to something else? Well, if there was something that provided better decentralization, you might see the move to that coin. If something provided better uh, security for the transaction, for the storage that you're putting into this. So like if I'm storing one Bitcoin, how much security is associated with that? Okay. So if another protocol comes along and provides better security and storage capacity for the value I'm storing, well, that that protocol could take off. So when I look at those metrics of, of why demand would go somewhere else that would prove that quote wrong, because then, you know, this is getting into the labor theory of value is, is that quote. And people say, well, the labor theory of value is invalid. That's the Adam Smith thing, right? And I would, I would counter that. I would say that it is valid as long as there's demand for the work that's being performed. And as long as you're dealing with something that is commodity-like, which Bitcoin is, okay, as long as those things are valid, I think that that quote remains true. And I think that's what we're seeing. And I think that's why we're seeing the, the stock-to-flow valuation continue to play out exactly like it was published. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a very insightful view. One other thing just occurred to me, and this gets back to, you know, Preston, who's rightly, you know, you're rightly laser-focused on the, you know, on the on the key performance indicators, right, of the network itself. One thing that would concern me is if you saw, you know, node count, you know, fall precipitously or continuously, you know, over time. And I guess I'd have to say, you know, visible node count plus, you know, we make some assumptions or we have some indication that, you know, Tor nodes or hidden nodes are, you know, for whatever reason also in decline. What, you know, how or why that would occur, I, I don't know. You know, everything about, computer science and, you know, things like Moore's law tells us that, you know, as compute gets better, faster, cheaper, it'll be easier and easier to run a node, right? Eventually we'll, we'll all have them on these things. And, um, so, you know, that eventuality is, is sort of hard to, to fathom. It's, it seems extremely unlikely. Um, but you know, if I had to imagine a scenario or, or a key performance indicator that would sort of give me concern, and might actually feed back into demand as Preston's talking about. In other words, people start to look at the thing and they say, 
you know, let's say it's a couple trillion or a few trillion dollars of value on the network now, and then people see the, you know, the node count reverse, and then they say, huh, well, I'm, I'm not as sure about the decentralization now, or, or not that I'm not sure about it, but I'm not like, maybe I'm $3 trillion sure, but I'm not $50 trillion sure, right? So, but that seems highly unlikely to me. And I agree, but those, those are the risks, right? We got representatives become fiscally responsible. We have some of the things we just talked about. Those are the risks. People want to hear, well, Preston, how could you be wrong? That's how I think I could be wrong. You, now you tell me what else I'm missing, right? Because I can't, I can't pin down anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's just not, not a lot of downside. We've been thinking about this for years and years and debating yeah. this and I mean, obviously all the FUD, you know, comes at you uh, from the skeptics and we've spent a long time looking at it from every direction and, you know, just Bitcoiners in general, especially developers and cypherpunks, uh, you know, are um, adversarial, they, they think in adversarial ways, right? They, they put themselves in your adversary's shoes and, you know, cut off the attack uh, wherever possible. I mean, and, and, <laughs> there's a, a famous, I think it might've been Dan Kaminsky, he was a, a famous uh, a hacker. And he was asked to audit the Bitcoin protocol, the, the code. And he said that every time that he thought of a way to attack the protocol, he would go to that spot in the code and there would literally be like comments like, uh, you know, remove this potential attack vector, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> so Satoshi's like, you know, all over it. And, and uh, it's only, you know, improved since, since then, uh, leaps and bounds. So, um, all right. Well, that, we're at time. That was a lot of fun. Uh, I really appreciate you guys coming in and hanging out and talking some Bitcoin. It's uh, super exciting times. And, you know, I hope you guys come back uh, relatively regularly and we'll just kind of keep checking in on all of our predictions and hopes and dreams for uh, this, this new money, this wild ride uh, that we call Bitcoin. Brady, I appreciate the opportunity. Andy, such a pleasure. I've uh, been following your Twitter for for quite a while now. So it's nice to, to chat with you and really appreciate the engagement with the audience and the, the questions in there. This is always so much fun for me to learn, to see the questions, the important questions that um, I think we just, we got to continue to troubleshoot. How could we be wrong? Um, what is it that we're missing? What aspects can we, can we add to the idea farm of all the technical people that are truly the ones making all of this happen from a programming standpoint. And just, uh, it's, it's really exciting to be a part of this community. Well, Preston and, uh, Brady, I really appreciate you guys, um, spending some time with me here. Uh, Preston, your, yours is the, you know, is basically the go-to, uh, Twitter account, you know, plus podcast, uh, for me on general, on general investing. Um, Brady, uh, you know, always, always a pleasure, man. Um, you're doing great work. How many pods are you running now, by the way? At least two. At least two. And I think you made another one for me recently, right? <laughs> yeah, we can <laughs> talk about that one offline. So uh, I really appreciate you guys um, coming on. And, uh, you know, I'm still learning and I learned some today. And uh, I hope our listeners uh, and viewers got, uh, you know, got something useful out of it. Listen to the Investors Podcast, uh, buy Andy's book, Why Buy Bitcoin. Go to swanbitcoin.com and start stacking uh, daily buys. Again, swanbitcoin.com slash daily buys. Get in on that group. Uh, we're going to be rolling that out soon and, and would love to have your input uh, as one of the first adopters of daily buys. 
Uh, and one more shill, this cool little pin. Uh, thanks to btcpins.com for uh, making these. They've got several others just kind of launched their business, but really cool designers. Um, there's a couple other designs out there too. Really cool uh, open dime uh, pin that looks pretty rad, just like a real thing. Um, so check those out, btcpins.com. All right, thanks everyone. Appreciate it. See you guys next week. Thanks to Preston and Andy for joining us today. You can find Preston on Twitter at Preston Pish. That's at P-R-E-S-T-O-N-P-Y-S-H. And Andy at Edstrom Andrew at E-D-S-T-R-O-M-A-N-D-R-E-W. And I am at Citizen Bitcoin. On behalf of the Swan team, thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Swan Signal podcast. If you're not subscribed yet, you can subscribe at swansignalpodcast.com. And it's really fun to join us on the live YouTube broadcasts whenever you're able at youtube.com slash swansignal. You can head over there, subscribe, turn on the notifications. We have a lot of fun in the live chat there. And we often work in some questions from listeners. Swan Signal is a production of Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com, the best way to accumulate Bitcoin with automatic recurring buys. That's it for this week. Take care out there. Thank you.